Today is October 28th, 2020. Markets take a tumble as coronavirus cases continue to rise. Trump takes a lot of heat for an interview with 60 Minutes. Amy Coney Barrett gets confirmed to the Supreme Court and protests erupt in Philadelphia. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and family. We got another great show for you today. It's the best one we've done so far, and I know that you're going to love it. Thank you for joining in. If you are new to us, go ahead and throw out. We are a political podcast with the goal of looking at both sides of the aisle. We want to look at the left side of the aisle. We want to look at the right side of the aisle. And we want to be able to compromise when we can, understanding that there's good things on both sides, and trying to figure out where that truth lies, which I think oftentimes lies in the middle. Uh, We have a great show today because there are plenty of things happening. The left is upset about some stuff. The right is upset about some stuff. The left and the right are both happy about things as well. And we're going to dive into all of the juiciest stories. So without further ado, let's hop on into our story number one. So first story of the day. The stock market was tepid, to say the least, starting out this week. That is an SAT word. You can feel free to use it anytime you want. October markets before an election notoriously are all over the place. They're up and down. They're going to be very, very volatile. But we had the biggest dip in the markets for the first time in a long time on Monday. Um, And it's mainly because right now investors are feeling a ton of uncertainty. You have elections here next coming up next Tuesday. And people are kind of freaking out. They don't know which way is up and which way is down. Investors are looking at a lot of different markets. um, And needless to say that things are uh, not going great in some areas, uh, even though Donald Trump is going to tell you everything's fantastic. Um, So... First thing, we're gonna I'm gonna basically run through about four reasons here as to why, uh, from my observations, uh, why the market is in a lot of ways kind of going up and down. So the first thing is plainly obvious: people don't know who's going to be president after next Tuesday. So, or I guess who's going to win the presidency after next Tuesday. So this one is plainly obvious, right? But it is incredibly important. One of the biggest reasons why October's October's are incredibly volatile in the stock market especially is because people know and rightfully recognize that the president is going to affect a lot of how the markets move with tax policy and economic policy, with infrastructure plans or uh, with foreign policy. The president has a lot of influence on how the economy does. Uh, it's not nearly as much influence as maybe some people think, but uh, you know a lot of presidents get full you know, full, take full responsibility when an economy is doing well, even though they kind of honestly don't deserve it. But oftentimes want to back out and say, oh, you know, I can't control absolutely everything if the markets are going bad. But president does affect a lot of policy change that, of course, affects the different markets that are out there. So Trump and Biden have incredibly different views on how the economy should be run. Um, Biden has come out and said that he wants to raise taxes in multiple different areas, whether it's a corporate tax rate, whether it's taxing uh, people that make over $400,000 a year. Um, Obviously, when taxes rise and the federal government's revenue increases, it somewhat shrinks the economy, right? Um, You can be a total Keynesian uh, economist and agree and admit to the fact that when governments raise taxes, economies normally shrink, right? Trump, on the other hand, has come out and said that he wants to make taxes even more favorable for corporations, wants to make taxes more favorable for the middle class by lowering them. Um, 
by trying to cut down on the federal budget. This obviously is going to expand the economy in some areas. Um, but there's arguments, you know, obviously as to why that may or may not be good as well, depending on the industry that you're in. Um, it isn't necessarily that simple either. So many investors believe that if Trump or that if Biden were to get elected, there would also be uh, an incredible stimulus that would get passed. Uh, if Biden gets elected and the Democrats maintain the House and the Democrats actually end up flipping the Senate as well, a lot of people are expecting for a gigantic stimulus package to be passed through. Well, that would be very good news for the economy because people are going to get a lot of money in their pockets. Um, so second reason why the why the markets, I think, are pretty tepid. Uh, one, that eviction and rent mem uh, mem moratoriums are up uh, in January. So once the national and local bans on evictions are up, there are going to be a lot of people that are on the hook for months and months of rent and are more than likely going to be uh, evicted. So some estimates have said that around 13 million people could be held accountable for about $5,400 a person come January. That's a lot of money on a lot of people, all right? 13 million people is a good, sizable portion of the, of the working economy. So as obviously would cause a very large problem. And a lot of people are predicting that this could cause uh, a serious housing crisis, uh, maybe not to the severity that happened in 08, but a serious problem within the housing markets nonetheless. Uh, the third reason is that coronavirus continues to go up. So in the United States, new cases are continuing to rise. Um, and don't show any signs of slowing down anytime soon. This is not good for economic markets because there are a lot of states, there are a lot of countries, there are a lot of municipalities that will continue to be either shut down completely or only operating at 50% capacity. Um, on top of all of the new cases rising, the Trump administration has also come out within the past week or so, which I talked about on my podcast on Monday, but... Um, the Trump administration has basically come out and kind of given their plan going forward with the coronavirus, which is somewhat along the lines of, we are not going to stop it. It's pretty much rolling through the entire country. There's no way you're going to be able to stop it because way too many people have it. We're going to basically throw all our bags and all of our eggs in the vaccine and medication and treatment basket, right? That doesn't excite investors because it just means that coronavirus is going to continue to go up. States counties, municipalities, more than likely are going to continue to operate at a very, very low capacity. Um, so that's not a good thing for markets. Uh, the fourth thing that I've observed also is that interest rates are still at an extremely low level, um, but the Fed is, the Federal Reserve is still saying that they're going to pump, pump money into the economy if they need to. So Jerome Powell, earlier this year, he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, came out and was like, oh no, the economy is going to be doing real bad. We're going to slash the Fed funds rate, interest rates all the way down, and we're going to basically just pump the economy full of cash, right? Um, so this could have some serious problems leading that lead to inflation here over the next couple of years. Generally, having low interest rates is going to be very, very good for big businesses, and they try to it, it'll help to bolster and spur the economy on normally. If you are in a situation of prolonged, very, very low interest rates, then you eventually get to the place where the dot and you, and at the same time, the Federal Reserve is pumping the economy full of cash, full of money. You probably heard a lot of stuff about, oh, Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve keep just printing money, right? You can't just print money. Well, what they're doing is they're basically just raising more and more debt. They're basically going out to other countries. They're doing it in a wide variety of different ways, but they're pumping the economy full of cash, okay? What that does is it devalues the American currency, which could cause 
inflation over the next coming years. Um, and it what it really, in a lot of ways, makes the United States debt less valuable and less appealing to foreign countries. So that's kind of shaking markets up a lot. Investors are very, very weary about this. And all of this is making a very difficult scenario for a lot of different markets heading into the end of the year. I would not be surprised at all to see the stock market, which Trump is so very fond of, start to wobble pretty badly here over the next month or so, especially if, honestly, if Trump does not get elected. Um, but... Total side note, this also gets into a phenomenal point uh, that Trump uses the stock market all the time as his gauge for how well the economy is doing, which is just such a false actual gauge of the economy. Just because your 401k is doing good doesn't mean that there are tons of holes within the economy that are ready to ready to cause a bubble to burst at any time, right? If you look at 2007 leading up into 2008, the stock market was doing fantastic then as well. If you look at the recession in 2000, at the end, you know, end of the 90s and the early 2000s, stock market was doing fantastic then as well. Obviously, a bubble burst. We went straight into a recession. Just because the the S and P five hundred is going up does not mean that the economy is all just you know happy go lucky. Everything is fine. Um, that's just a classic Trump trope right there. Trump trope. Say that five times fast. So all that to be said, markets are definitely going up and down. They're a little bit shaky right now, and they probably will be going in to the end of the year. Um, that's quick, easy, fast update on story number one. Let's go ahead and head on into our story number two. So second story of the day, Trump had an interview with 60 Minutes' Leslie Shaw, Stahl, I'm sorry, Leslie Stahl. I honestly don't know why he continues to accept these interviews. He just keeps doing it, knowing that they're not going to go well knowing that he's going to go under fire, knowing that the media is going to attack him, but he still continues to take these interviews. I don't know why. I mean, he knows that as soon as he sat down in that chair, Leslie Stahl was going to just start swinging punches at him. And she said in the very beginning, are you ready for some tough questions? That was really the first thing that she said, which nothing wrong with that. You should be willing to ask the president, the candidate that's running for the president of the United States. You should be able to ask him tough questions, right? But we'll get into a little bit about how everything was handled, which in my uh, very humble opinion was pretty stereotypical of how the, tr how the media treats Trump uh, pretty regularly. But this kind of was a great example of how Trump does in one-on-one -on -one interviews, which is not great. Okay. Anytime that you see Trump up in front of a large crowd, especially he's at a MAGA rally, right? Make America great again rally. When he's there and he's got his MAGA hat on and he's, you know, getting the crowds pumped up. I've said this over and over again. I will continue to say it. I think Trump is one of the best stand up comedians in the country. The man knows how to work his audience. He knows how to work his base extremely well. When he's up there getting that crowd pumped up, just getting everybody jazzed, he does extremely well, okay? That's like peak Trump. When he's sitting down in a one-on-one -on -one interview getting asked very difficult questions from an obviously left-leaning media, he does extremely poorly. And this was a great example of it here. So let's go ahead. Let's go to hop in and watch uh, a little bit of kind of what went down with this interview um, that uh, actually aired this past Sunday. Let's take a look now. In campaign 2020, tonight, 60 Minutes aired its interview with President Trump, the one he walked out on last week. Correspondent Leslie Stahl pressed the president on once again rising coronavirus cases. And I have nothing against masks, and I tell people to wear masks. 
I have well, no tell problem. me then about these rallies you've been having. A lot of people are wearing people, masks. And a lot of people outside. aren't. I'm, I'm watching all these people jammed in together, and I'm seeing most of them without yeah. masks. After a producer mentioned time remaining for the interview, the president abruptly ended it. I think we have enough of an interview here, Hope. Okay, that's enough. Let's go. So uh, there you see Trump didn't last very long um, before he basically says, you know, I'm, I'm done. I think we've got enough of an interview here. I'm going to get up. I'm going to get up and, and, and hop out of here. So I know that pretty much the only thing that you ever hear out of Trump's mouth is that the media is out to get him, right? I know that. And I, I, it gets annoying sometimes to hear. But in the words of Joe Biden, come on, man. Come on, man. If you are going to sit here and say that the media is not vehemently opposed to Trump, come on, man. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea how you can listen to the two interviews. So they also, 60 Minutes also did an interview with Joe Biden, right? They did an interview with Trump and they did an interview with Joe Biden. I don't know how you can listen to those two interviews and say that there's not an obvious and clear bias against Donald Trump, okay? I'm not saying that Trump doesn't bring it on himself. A lot of times, he absolutely does. He says and does awful things about 90% of the time, right? But 60 Minutes, what used to be such a fantastic example of like pretty much like hard-hitting, for the most part, as unbiased as possible reporting on stuff that's happening, big stories that are happening. They have, uh, in the past, done a lot of interviews with presidents where they've sat down and interviewed the presidential candidates that are running, and it wasn't like this. If you watch what was actually shown by 60 Minutes and Leslie Stahl of Donald Trump and his interview with them, the entire thing, for the most part, is a pretty much a hit piece against Trump. Okay? It is. And, like, I, I'm, again, I'm going to say I'm not the biggest Trump fan in the world by any stretch of the imagination. But they w purposefully went after him. And I think a lot of it was because they wanted him to be able to, if they could get a big rise out of him, and that he played right into their hand. But... Um, they took a lot of stuff what he, that he said completely out of context. Uh, every time that he said something, they would play a video that would try to refute what he said or, you know, try to paint what he said in a bad light. They, you know, the entire piece was against him from the very beginning, overwhelmingly so. And Trump knew that going in, which t goes back into why did he go in? Why did he do it? Why did he even go in and do it anyway? What the most surprising thing about all of this was, though, is that the left, their outrage against Trump was not necessarily because they said that he was, you know, his policies or any of the stuff that he was saying in the interview was bad. They weren't mad at him because, um, you know, they said that he was lying about something or, you know, that uh, the way that he, uh, I don't know, the way that he carried himself wasn't good. Their thing was it against policy. What they were upset about was they said that they, he interrupted Leslie Stahl too much. This was the big thing, Okay. The entire of the entirety of the left wing media got on him because they said that he was a hothead, basically a male chauvinist, and that he was uh, man interrupting with Leslie Stahl. So phenomenal opinion piece, and by phenomenal, I'm being very facetious there. Written by Lynn Stewart Paramore for NBC News. Okay, so. Uh, this is an opinion, basically an opinion piece that I've read that sums up a lot of what the far left was angry about, and especially the Twitter mob was upset about with Donald Trump. Had nothing to do with policy. So the beginning starts with this. The entitled male is hard to shut up. Recent displays of infuriating, quote, man-terrupting illustrate how tough it can be to manage the problem. 
CBS News' journalist Leslie Stahl, in her 60 Minutes interview Sunday with Donald Trump, was interrupted, talked over, instructed, and lectured on how to speak. Despite, or perhaps because of, her unrattled persistence, Trump finally cut her off completely and walked out of the interview early. The rest of the article goes on to then talk about how men, as a complete generality, only want to cut off women, don't want to listen to what women have to say, um, are pretty much are you know male chauvinist, uh, that they need to be taught how to communicate with women, um, that men are taught from a very young age to subjugate and oppress the way that women, uh, women's ability to be able to speak. Um, it goes on to say, getting men to stop is notoriously tricky. Many are oblivious of or don't understand the impact of their actions. Manterrupters, studies show, start their careers early. Boys at age four are already interrupting girls in play situations, and they do the same at school, perhaps imitating their teachers, who interrupt girls more themselves. They, she quoted a whole bunch of Honestly, incredibly poorly cited different things, uh, a lot of them behind a paywall, so you couldn't even get in to actually see what it is that she was citing. And the whole premise behind it is that men, as a generality, are not good, and they purposefully are out to get women, okay? That's the overarching summation of the op-ed by Miss Paramore. So, what does that have to do with any of this, right? What does that have to do with it? All of that is to say is that the left wants so badly to tear Trump down, they are attacking him in ways that actually ignite his base. One of the many reasons why Trump ended up getting into office in the first place is because there is such a large portion of the American, American populace that looks at situations like this and they're like, if you want to attack Trump on his policy, fine. If you want to attack Trump because... He's not wearing a mask and he's not doing, you know, not handling the coronavirus the way that he should. If you want to attack Trump because uh, you don't like his foreign policy or you don't like the way that he's handling the economy, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We can talk, we can debate that type of stuff all day long and you could probably have legitimate points. But when you go out and you say that Donald Trump is purposefully being a male chauvinist and just attacking a woman simply because he's a woman, and then use that to generalize the entirety of the male populace, that infuriates a lot of people. So um, I think, and maybe this is a controversial opinion, I, I don't know, but what it looks like is that every time that you see the left push into trying to attack and to uh, push a lot of this more, I guess the common term is like political correctness or how, whatever you want to call it. When, when you see that start to be pushed harder, you normally see a huge kickback against that from the American people. I think that Trump is a phenomenal example of that. It's not just because everybody that's on the right side of the aisle is a racist, misogynist, homophobe, horrible person, right? That's not true. But what is true is that a lot of people on the right were incredibly infuriated by being generalized and lumped in with all of those people that do and think terrible things. This is not all to say that Trump is not a misogynist, and this is not all to say that Trump does not do and say terrible stuff. He does. It's apparently obvious. But I think that the Democrats, or maybe not the Democrats, the left-wing media as a whole, attacking Trump for this instead of sticking, at, sticking on and attacking him for policy— 
is actually going to end up voting worse for the Democrats going into the election. Um, I think that the Brett Kavanaugh hearings are another fantastic example of this, uh, of the left and the media really, really pushing hard to attack somebody and then use that to generalize the entirety of the male populace or to generalize a whole bunch of people. It doesn't end up doing well for them. Um, interestingly enough, though, like what Joe Biden, I think, has done a very good job of is not attacking Trump in this way very often. Of course, Joe Biden comes out and he says the same things that a lot on the left say that Trump lies a lot or that Trump, um, you know, pays hush monies to uh, hush money to uh, people that he had sex with or that Donald Trump is not a good person. All, a lot of that Joe Biden has absolutely come out and said. But Joe Biden doesn't just focus on that. That's not the only argument he has against Trump. What Joe Biden has been focusing on heavily is Trump's policy. And I think that it's done a good job so far. Um, and, and it's showing up so far in the polls. Um, so maybe this is out there. Maybe this is far reaching. I don't think it is. But I think that the media in some ways, when they attack Trump in this way and they have opinion pieces that generalize men as all being terrible, uh, quote, man interrupters, that it pushes a lot of people towards Trump. It doesn't push people towards Biden. It pushes people towards Trump. Like Trump is the explanation for like how, or basically he is the reaction to all of that happening in 2015 and 2016. He's a lot of the reason why Donald Trump got elected is because the left came out and basically were like, Hillary Clinton's famous deplorables. All of these people that are voting for Trump or that act like whoever, all, if you're a Republican, you're a deplorable, right? Um, so, very interesting to see that that's kind of where the media started to move towards that, okay? They started to immediately, instead of attacking Trump for his policy, and they've got plenty of ammo to do that, they're attacking him for a whole bunch of different things that, you know, more or less kind of take the focus off of some of the other faux pas that Trump has made in policy, which I think would help them more. So it'll be interesting to see how this obviously ends up playing out over the next week or so and how this plays out in the senatorial and House races, but... Um, I am under the, impression, under the impression that over the past four years, every time the media and the left starts to attack Trump for stuff that doesn't have to do with his policy, oftentimes it kind of ends up burning them a little bit on the back end. But um, with all that, that's the end of our story number two. Let's go ahead and move on into our story number three. So third story. Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed. We'll kind of glaze over this a little bit quickly because we've talked about this so much over the past couple of weeks. But in a historic vote, Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court on Monday night, um, effectively shifting the court to a six to three conservative majority. She will start looking over cases here soon over the next couple of weeks, likely. Um, and I'll say it was pretty incredible to watch Clarence Thomas, uh, Justice you know, swear her in. It was a, I think a nice ceremony that the ceremony went well and her vote, you know, for the most part, obviously it was completely along party lines. Um, but it was an interesting ceremony, uh, afterwards that took place at the white house. And, um, uh, the, uh, nobody I think was super surprised by all this happening, but, um, let's go ahead and hop in and take a quick look at uh, her confirmation ceremony. From judge to Justice Barrett. Hi, Amy Coney Barrett. Exactly one month after being nominated by President Trump, Amy Coney Barrett now joins the nation's highest court, concluding one of the quickest and most controversial Supreme Court confirmations in modern American history. I love the Constitution and the Democratic Republic that it establishes, and I will devote myself to preserving it. 
the ceremonial swearing-in Monday night at the White House with Justice Clarence Thomas doing the honors. So help me God. So help me God. Right, so there's Amy Coney Barrett getting sworn in by Clarence Thomas. Um, you heard him say it in the clip, but this was without a doubt one of the most controversial Supreme Court uh, nominations. Maybe not picks of all time, but definitely the confirmation process was incredibly controversial. Um, definitely on up there with Brett Kavanaugh as well. Um, it's yet to see how all this will play out in the elections, but if there's, you know, I think this kind of ties in a little bit more towards this definitely makes Trump look great to his supporters, does not make him look great to people that don't support him. Um, one of the biggest things that Trump promised in 2015 and 2016 is that he would work on and he would do his best to be able to come out and nominate a bunch of conservative judges. He has done that. He's actually kept that promise to his base, to the people that, that elected him. He's nominated well over 200 judges, um, which will shape the courts for many, many years to come. Um, I've said before, I don't think that this was actually a smart move politically for the Republicans. I think that this likely is going to hurt the Republicans uh, going into next Tuesday. And the reason why I think that is because in a lot of ways, you know, you're looking at um, you're looking at uh, the Democrats who have kind of in some ways thrown their hands up and been like, there's nothing we can do to stop it. But the Republicans don't care about having the American people's voices heard. Um, they did. They are incredible hypocrites because they turn back on what they said in 2016, which was 100% true. Like the amount of mental gymnastics that all these Republicans are having to play right now in order to be able to say that they are not contradicting themselves from four years ago when Merrick Garland, they didn't allow the um, confirmation of Merrick Garland is incredible. I mean, there are some serious mental gymnastics going on on the case of a lot of these Republicans. But um, I think that she is absolutely a conservative justice, okay? I don't think that she's going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, or just walk in and get rid of the Affordable Care Act immediately because she doesn't like it. I could be completely wrong. We'll have to see how she actually, you know, casts her vote and everything and, you know, the dissents and different things that she gives or opinions that she gives. But the right, what's clear is the right side of the aisle is cheering this, which we all knew that they would. Um, they're cheering this as an incredible feat of just slamming through a justice as fast as they possibly can. While the left side of the aisle, especially the far left side of the aisle, is calling for some pretty extreme measures, okay? And this is where I, you know, the left side of the aisle starts to lose me. I very much agree with the left when they are saying, uh, the Republicans are being overly hypocritical here. The Republicans are trying to slam in a justice and we don't hardly know anything about her. Uh, we should have had more time. We should have waited until after the election. I agree with that. I, I really do see and understand the sentiment with a lot of that. What I don't think is good and what I don't agree with is the idea and the sentiment behind court packing or creating new district, federal district courts uh, coming out and basically changing the landscape of the judicial system because the Democrats, you know, lost this fight. They, they lost this battle. Um, we actually, you actually, Pelosi actually came out, um, on MSNBC in an interview and, uh, said that she was going to do just this, that pretty much nothing is on off the table right now. So let's go ahead, listen in and take a look. As the speaker of the house, are you open to efforts to do that in the future? Well, I think that Joe Biden has given us a good path. He's going to have something that people can understand why this is important. And I like what something that Brian said about not just the Supreme Court, but the other courts. It was a hundred. Oh, well, in 1879, 
1876, there were nine justices on the court. Our population has grown enormously since then. Should we expand the court? Well, let's take a look and see. Right. But not, and that relates to the nine uh, district courts. Maybe we need more district courts as well. So that was Nancy Pelosi basically coming out and saying nothing is off the table. Okay, we uh, we obviously have lost this. Nobody was talking about court packing before all of this started to get pushed through. Um, And that's some pretty scary stuff, to say the least. So I'm not going to be the person that thinks the Republicans make that made a good move here. And I'm not going to be the person that says that the Democrats were wrong when they were saying that the Republicans were trying to slam a Supreme Court justice through. I I think that that's correct. But what I am going to do is give pushback when because you have lost the majority and because you're you're worried about uh, the conservative uh, leaning on the courts, you're going to go ahead and change the entirety of the way the judicial framework is working right now. That is not what needs to happen. That's not how a republic is run. A republic is is moved is moved and shaped and is run in a way where you understand that the last thing that you want to do is start to forfeit and change the things that are, have been happening and are set in place in order to keep a balance of power. What I'm not comfortable with and what I'm not okay with is people wanting and the Democrats wanting to go through and rewrite and change the way that our judiciary system is actually set up right now. It is set up in a way so that power is trying to be as evenly as distributed as possible across very across the two parties, okay? And set up and it's structured in a way so that the masses, the majority, don't just rule over everyone with an iron fist. It's the reason why the Electoral College is there. It's the reason why the judiciary is not supposed to be an extremely partisan part branch of the government, okay? And when you when I'm starting to see the Democrats saying that uh, packing the court is not out of the question and that changing the structure of the federal district courts is not out of the question and going through and trying to uh, basically bolster and force their way into using the courts uh, to their own advantage. That is not the thing that the Democrats need to do, because eventually, at some point or another, the Democrats will be voted out of power. They will. Just in the same way that there have been, there's been a push and a pull and a tug for the entirety of American history, eventually the Democrats will be voted out. And when that happens, they will be, there will be Republicans that step up and they use all of the power that the Democrats consolidated to be able to squash the, the Democrats right back again, which causes this equally unbalanced, greater and greater and greater tug for power at the federal level that is going to tear the country apart. It's going to tear the judiciary apart and tear the the legislative and the executive branches apart. When you start to see the checks and balances that were put in place for a reason uh, broken up, that is not a good sign. That is the last thing that the Democrats need to do. So will they actually go through with it on all of it? I don't know. I'm not, but when you're seeing Nancy Pelosi, who in a lot of ways is one of the biggest leaders within the Democratic Party, coming out and talking about wanting to be able to have keeping their eyes open for wanting to pack the Supreme Court and being willing to be able to change judiciaries. That's not a good sign to me. Um, I, I agree with and I see the sentiment that the left is coming from where they're looking at it and they're saying the situation that's happening with Amy Coney Barrett was incredibly hypocritical, but you can't look at it and say, all right, well, we're going to rewrite 
everything right now in order to be able to try and force our way into power within the judiciary um, because that could lead to a lot of problems later on down the road. Um, so with all that being said, let's go ahead and move on into our story number four. So story four, which is actually the last story of the day. I normally do three stories and I was planning on doing three stories today, but uh, this story came up earlier this week and I felt like it was something that I needed and wanted to talk about at least at least briefly before uh, I ended up sending this podcast out. So um, the four stories around uh, the protests that have absolutely erupted in Philadelphia over the past couple days. So a uh, black man was shot in Philadelphia by police on Monday, and a fresh wave of protests have absolutely gripped, especially West Philadelphia. Um, so uh, Walter Wallace Jr., he was a 27-year-old black man. He was shot and killed in West Philly by police. Um, cops basically pulled up to the scene. Wallace was uh, standing there with a knife. He was obviously enraged and upset. He in the There's some pretty gruesome and graphic video, which if you have not watched, I don't necessarily even know that it'd be worth watching. If you really desire to or you want to watch it, you know, discretion advised. But um, Wallace was carrying a knife. Uh, in the video, you can clearly see police officers are walking around yelling at him to stop. His mom was begging him to stop, walking up to him and grabbing him, trying to pull him away. Um, all of it ended with him being shot a lot of times in the middle of the street with a whole bunch of people watching and he died. So, um, you can hear his mom screaming in the video. It, it is an absolutely gruesome video to be able to watch. Um, a couple of things are obvious here. The man was obviously armed, um, and you can, which you can see in the video online. Um, you can also clearly see that the man was shot with the intention and with the purpose to kill him. Um, as soon as one shot rang out, the rest of them rang out very shortly thereafter. Um, apparently, according to his father, he had mental health issues um, and was on medication. Maybe he was off of his medication that day. Um, but um, the police in the video can be seen asking the guy to stop. Either way, it's awful, right? Um, it's terrible that this happens at least once every couple weeks. We have a video or something happening where a black man is shot and killed by police. Um, so the whole city pretty much erupted in protest, okay? 91 people were arrested as of Tuesday afternoon. Um, and just on Monday night alone, 30 cops were injured with one cop actually having to go to the hospital with multiple broken bones. She wasn't in great condition after being purposefully run over by a pickup truck. Okay. So what I'm not going to do on it right now is sit here and act like I'm a, some type of forensic specialist or, uh, uh, some type of criminal justice expert and break down the video from top to bottom. Um, because I'm not educated in that area. And I personally don't think that I'm qualified enough to be able to give you a top to bottom analysis of what exactly happened. Um, what happened is absolutely heartbreaking and it's not the first. And unfortunately it won't be the last. And contrary to what a lot of the media is going to tell you right now, you do not have to pick sides on this. The number one thing that we are hearing and that we are seeing is that there are two sides to all of these situations. That you have to look at a situation and you have to decide whether or not you're going to support black people or whether or not you're going to support cops. That is a false dichotomy and that's not true. What we can do in situations like this is you can, on one hand, right, 
You can be heartbroken that a black man with mental health issues was shot and killed in Philadelphia on Monday and desire earnestly for police reform, acknowledging that there's a terrible problem with violence against black men and women in this country and want to see a systemic change. On one hand, you can see that. While on the same, while on the opposite time or on the opposite hand at the same time, you are longing for our police officers to be supported, funded properly, and benefit from reform that will equip our officers with better training, better equipment, better understanding of de-escalation practices, and post-traumatic counseling. Wading into difficult situations and being willing to be, reason be the reasonable voice amidst the chaos is worth it. It is always worth it. And all of us have the opportunity to do that by refusing to be divided over this. We all agree that we want to see less violence, whether it's at the hand of a cop or whether it's at the hand of riots and protests. We can have an honest conversation about this without assuming that all cops are racist and without acting like there's no problem at all. We can do that. And we, can't, we should do that. There is not this false dichotomy that you are either a racist cop supporter who doesn't believe that uh, there's anything wrong with racism or anything wrong at all, or you have to be a, a Black Lives Matter uh, banner-toting, all-out, uh, I hate all police, all cops should die, defund the police, everyone that's white is racist. Those are two far extremes, and we don't have to be on those extremes. We can come in the middle and say, we understand that there's problems and we want to be able to fix the problems together. We want to have actual conversations. Obviously, we can condemn violence for the cops. We can also condemn violence at protests and riots. The last thing that we want to see is cops being killed. And the last thing that we want to see is unarmed black men or, I mean, even armed black men being killed. We don't, we don't want to see any of that, okay? We, there, we have to get out of the mindset that there's this false dichotomy of uh, you have to pick one side or the other. And if you don't, then uh, you, you know, you, you are, you're missing the point. Everything is wrong, okay? We can find the truth that lies in the middle right there. So with all of that being said, I'm sorry to end the last story on a pretty tough note, difficult note. I felt like that was something that was incredibly important that needed to be said. Um, so with all of that, let's go ahead into our last segment of the show, which is something that made me smile. So, at the risk of being really, really lame right now, what made me smile over the past couple of days is a book. I'm a big reader. I know you can call me a dweeb all you want, but I love a good book. I love to read United States history, probably even more nerdy. But I've been reading Grant by uh, Ron Chernow for a little while now. It is a very dense book. If you have never read anything by Ron Chernow, you totally need to do it because he's a phenomenal historian. But it prompted me to say, you know what I think would be fun is to make a list of all of the good books that I like to read and put them on my website. So that's something that I'm going to work on. I'm going to work on putting together a list of all of the books that I've loved and enjoyed over the past couple of years, things that have inspired me, things that I thought were interesting, things that uh, you know, I thought were really cool or fun to read. And I'm going to put them on my website for you, the listeners, to go and read, take a look at anytime that you want. Um, hopefully that will be rolling out soon and you guys can hop on over there and take a look. So with all that being said, that is our show. I know it was a little bit of a longer show today. Thank you for sticking in there with me. 
It's a Split the Difference podcast. Check me out on all of the different places. I'm on Facebook at Split the Difference. I'm on Instagram at Split the Difference podcast with one T. Check out my website, splitthedifference.com with only one T. Check me out on there. Give me a like. Give me a subscribe. Rate me with a high review. Those things help and make a huge difference for me. Um, Hit me up. Let me know what you think. Give me feedback if you'd like to. I'd love to hear what all of you guys think. Um, And with that being said, that's the show. Thank you for stopping in. This is always going to remember we're going to stay level-headed, right? We're going to be reasonable, and we're going to do our best to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.